Please be seated. Okay, so we have come to the Eighth Commandment in our study of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We'll confess the answers to the first three, or or the three questions that pertain to the Eighth Commandment, starting in question 73. Question 73, which is the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment is... Thou shalt not steal. Question 74. What is required in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. Question 75. What is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment forbiddeth whatsoever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. Now, I introduce this commandment to you by pointing out that God has authority over property, our property, because he owns everything. Yet he gives us things to own and tells us not to steal the things that belong to our neighbor. So we saw that there is a thing such as ownership, primary ownership that God has as the owner of all things and a secondary ownership that we have as those who are given responsibility to possess things in this world as long as God gives them to us. I use the illustration of secondary ownership with a, if, if you are in an office and you, you're told, well, here's your desk when you go to work there, then you say, that's my desk and you tell people that's my desk and they're not to leave things on your desk or whatever, and uh, not to use your desk. But it's not exactly your desk because it really belongs to the company, doesn't it? You can't take it home and, and use it to, to heat your house to, as firewood or you can't set it up in your home office because it doesn't really belong to you. It belongs to someone else. It belongs to you in a secondary way. And that's how it is with our possessions, that God can tell us what to do with everything that we have and how we're to, be guide, we're to be guided and regulated by his commandments. In the second sermon, we looked at some of the ways that we unjustly diminish our neighbor's wealth. Cheating, stealing, laziness at work, carelessness with our neighbor's things, with his property, not helping him when his possessions are in peril, uh, all of those things. In the third sermon, we looked at how we ought to have regard for our own wealth, how we obtain it by labor and also maintain it by labor as well and by prayer in both cases, and how that we're to take care of everything we have with gratitude to God. And then this week, I want to show you that God gives us possessions not only for our own use and enjoyment, but also for us to share with others. It is, in fact, a tremendous blessing that God arranged the whole of human society in this way, as we'll see, where we have things that we can give to other people. Our scripture reading related to this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Before I begin reading this chapter, I want to give you a little bit of background about it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, 
Paul was writing about a special offering that he was collecting for the impoverished believers at Jerusalem. As Jews, they had been, of course, the first to receive the gospel. And they had been persecuted and put out of the synagogue, which, of course, was the Jewish church, whenever they trusted in Jesus. And that meant that people would not patronize their business. It meant that people would not give them jobs. They would be put out of work. They would have, no one would hire them. The wealthier members of the church had given of their substance to help the poorer ones. And they had also supported the apostles and other missionaries who had gone out to to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But now they were impoverished and they were out of resources and they needed help, the saints at Jerusalem. So Paul was encouraging the churches of God that, that God had raised up among the Gentiles to help their Jewish brothers and sisters with an offering. He was collecting it to be sent to them and sending various men to go and collect the offerings. The Corinthians had already expressed a desire to help with this offering, and Paul is encouraging them to follow through with what they had said that they would do. So we pick up in chapter 9, verse 1. Here is the word of God, 2 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, so he's talking about this offering, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. So you can imagine if uh, Paul had said about how the Corinthians are ready to help out with this offering, they've promised that they're going to help out, and he's telling everybody about this, and everybody's saying, oh, wow, and then they say, well, we, we want to give to this too, and they're stirred up by their example. And then he goes to Corinth, and they say, what? Oh, well, we, we, you know, we, we aren't really ready to do that. You know? So he says, verse 5, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That's talking about, of course, the godly man that's from Psalm 112 that we'll sing later. Verse 10, now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, 
but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. May God add his blessing to this, the reading of his holy word. What you see in this passage is one group of people, the Corinthians, being encouraged to provide for another group of people, the impoverished saints at Jerusalem. In verse 1, Paul refers to it as ministering to the saints. His overall thrust is encouragement to them to perform the ministry or service to the poor that, uh, and needy in a generous way. Here is so often the, here, as is so often the case in the scripture, we find a truth that applies to uh, much more than the particular circumstance that Paul is addressing. And this truth is what I want you to consider as we begin here, namely that God enriches some in order that they might enrich others. He governs the world that way so that some people are dependent on the provident care of others. I can definitely prove this. This is particularly obvious with children. They come into the world even before the fall as helpless creatures who cannot provide for themselves. They have no clothes. They have no food. They have no knowledge or skills to provide for themselves. God has put them in a place of dependency on other people, of course, typically under the care of their parents. He has done this deliberately in order that we might have this arrangement where one person who has more provides for another who cannot look after themselves. But it is not just children that find themselves, of course, in this place of dependency. God governs the world in such a way that we're that, that we are dependent on others in many other ways as well. In more developed societies like our own, we have a variety of skills and we depend on each other in thousands of ways. Some are employed to grow food and, uh, and others to supply us with electricity for our home and still others with medical care. And now that we're fallen, then there is even more ways that we're dependent. Some are put into a place of dependency by old age, by sickness, by circumstances, by disabilities, all sorts of things. Some of our dependency is on account of the fall, but some of it was around from creation from the start. God has arranged things this way. And as Paul shows the Corinthians, let me just say one more thing about um, when we think about paradise you know, what happens in glory, I believe, is not that we have no need, but that we have no lack. Because everyone will be fulfilling their calling before God. And that's a big difference, isn't it? If you, to, to have, we, we will still, I see no reason that we would not still need to eat and to have food and, and such things. But we will always have the provision of food. There won't be the poverty and the shortages that we have in this fallen world. And other people will be work, we'll all be working together as we do now, but in a way where selfishness and, 
and withholding and all those things are a thing of the past. Okay, now as Paul shows the Corinthians, God often gives us more than we need so that we can give to others who have less than they need. You can see in 2 Corinthians 9.11 how he tells them that you are enriched in everything for all liberality. In other words, you have been enriched so that you will be able to give generously to other people. He is not saying that every person is in every situation in such a position where they are enriched to be able to give liberally to others. He is saying that the Corinthians at this time, in this circumstance, have been enriched to provide for the saints at Jerusalem, who at this time have been impoverished. At this time, it was not the other way around. The saints at Jerusalem were not in a position to help the Corinthians, but the Corinthians were in a position to help the saints at Jerusalem. There are times when you are on the receiving end, and there are times when you are enriched in order that you might share with those who need to receive. That's how God governs the world. And you're to learn to glorify God in either situation. They can both be, they both have their own difficulties. When God has given you the ability, you are responsible to provide for yourself and to help others in need. We've looked at the verse in Ephesians 4, 28, while we've been looking at the eighth commandment a couple of times, that says, let him that stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands that he may have something to give to him who has need. So we're to deliberately aim to make ourselves, to put ourselves in a position as we are able to be able to provide for ourselves and for other people. We're not to just think about only providing for ourselves. If we're capable, we're to, uh, to go beyond that. So this adds to what we saw last week as the purpose to the, about the purpose of wealth. Last week, we saw that God gives us things not only for survival, but he also gives us extra, more than we need, for our enjoyment. We have far more than we need. But today we see that he gives us more than we need and the opportunity to produce more than we need for another reason, so that we can give to others. He gives us enough both to provide for the essential needs of others as well as to give gifts for, to enhance their happiness. So it is a great blessing to be able to express our love for others in this way. And God has arranged the world in this way so that we can and should give of our substance. Okay, that being said, now let's look at some of the persons that we are to share our wealth with. Okay, this will be the main bulk of what we're looking at in this section. Uh, Before we begin, though, I want to point out that some of these are those that we are required to provide for, and some of these are those that we can voluntarily share our substance with. We will look at those that we're commanded to provide for first, and then we'll look at those that we may provide for as we wish to do so. But as we go along, we will also see that even for those that we are required to provide for, there is often some freedom in the degree to which we provide for them. 
Sometimes we have certain stipulated taxes and tithes and things like that, but there's opportunity to go beyond. I think you'll see what I'm talking about as we go on. So let's get on with this. First, you are commanded to provide for your own household. The scripture goes so far as to say in 1 Timothy 5, 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. God has absolutely no use for a man that will not look after his own children. For those men that that go around like dogs having sex with one woman after another with no interest in providing either for the women or for the children that might be conceived along the way. It's reprehensible to have a creator who provides for you so that you can provide for your children only to have you abandon and ignore those children. Young men, even you who are not yet married need to be preparing yourself for a future career, for a way that you can provide for yourselves. And if you already have a career, then you need to love your future family by laying up for them now instead of uh, waiting, wasting your substance on frivolous indulgences and, and selfish idleness. But I will have you know that this works the other way as well. With uh, We're talking about parents laying up for their children, providing for their children. The context actually of 2 Timothy 5 is actually about children providing for a parent, for their widowed mother in this case. That is something that we're commanded to do as well. So see, one time you might be the little child that's being taken care of by your mother, and then another time you might be the adult that is taking care of your mother. Don't burden the government or the church with providing for them. You are to provide for them if you're able to do so in, in the cases where they're not able to provide for themselves. And not only that, but women are also to provide for their households. Proverbs 31 describes the virtuous woman as one who looks after her family, seeing that they are clothed and cared for. She is described as one who stays up late, being a blessing to her family, serving her husband and her children in love. And remember, it does not have to be financial provision. That's not the only kind. We think about finances, money, money, money all the time because of our, the way our economy is. But it's, it's to be involved as it is with the woman in Proverbs 31. But a home is greatly blessed and enriched by women who, who manage their homes, who look well to the ways of their household, as it says. So she's described as one who, who serves and provides and gives to the poor and does all sorts of things. I'm, I'm very saddened to see this to see what is happening in the West today. In pagan societies, men are often lazy bums and they leave all the work to their wives and children. Missionaries, both secular and Christian, recognize this as a major problem in third world countries. Through the influence of of the scriptures, our forefathers in the West have built a society in which women were free to manage the home and to nurture their children. But now we see more and more men who want to do, who want nothing to do with such things. And women are left once again, 
like they are in pagan countries still, to provide financially and to nurture their children. I remember talking to uh, Vince Ward when he was a missionary in Sudan, and he told about how the women do everything. The men just sit around and talk to each other. None of them work. The women do the gardening. They plow the fields. They cook the meals. They take care of the children and wash them. and do, they, they do everything, and the men do absolutely nothing. In our society, we're beginning to see that more and more. Children are growing up without fathers, and women are forced to provide for their children alone. The feminist movement arose because men made women feel that their role as nurturers and managers of the home was inferior. Greed also drove men and women to put a higher value on a a double income than on managing the home. And now we don't even want children at all in our society. They're just something that is in the way that we, we don't want to be bothered with. We don't want the burden of having to take care of them. We have become a society where everyone provides for themselves and resents the burden of having to provide for anyone else. A second category of persons that you're required to provide for are those who serve you. Whenever people work for you, whether they are your employees or someone that you have just hired for a day job to reshingle your roof or to do something like that, God expects you to provide them with a fair wage and to pay them on time. James has some very harsh words for those who do not pay the people they hired to cut their their fields for them. In James 5, 3 through 5, he says, you have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. So they were feeding themselves upon using the wages that belonged to others that they should have given to others. Their, their riches that they should have distributed to their workers are crying out in judgment against them the same way that uh, Abel's blood cried out against Cain when he murdered him. This also works the other way. When you're the one who is hired, who's hired out or serving others, you are to do your best to enrich them as the one that is the worker. You are to give them hard work, honest work, and good work. Colossians 3.23 tells you to do your work heartily as to the Lord and not to man. Your eye is to be toward pleasing God in the way that you do your work for others. When a believer is working for another believer, it ought to be the beautiful situation in which both are eagerly trying to be a blessing to the other, where both are full of gratitude for all that God has given them and where the worker says, you are are paying me more than I deserve. You can't afford to pay me this work, this much for the work that I'm doing. And then where the employer says things like, well, I'm paying you extra because you have a family to take care of. And your work is so valuable to me because you're faithful and reliable and you do way more than I ask you to do. And they have a relationship like that. That's a beautiful thing when we see that kind of thing in, in society. And it should, be, it should characterize us when Christian is working for Christian. 
you see here that there is a voluntary element then to this. Yes, I am required to pay the wages that, that I have promised to pay a fair wage, but I'm always free to do more than that if I'm able to do so. And so maybe I have an, uh, somebody working for me and they get sick. Then I can choose, even though I didn't promise to do it, to provide for them during the time that they're sick and to help them out if I'm capable of doing that. There's all sorts of opportunities that we have, and we should look at that as a wonderful blessing when we can do that, not as something that we do in a a grudging way. A third category of persons that you're required to provide for are the ministers of the gospel. And along with that, you're commanded to provide for the work of the church. From ancient times, the requirement has been a tithe of all our increase to the Lord. We see this all the way back even before the law, where Abraham gave a tithe to the priest Melchizedek. In the Old Testament, this was used to provide a living for the priests and the Levites who offered sacrifices and taught the people and led them in worship in their communities, in their, in their uh, weekly worship. In the New Testament, it is for the ministers of the word who preach the gospel and who lead in worship and service. Paul connects the Old Testament ministers with the New Testament ministers of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 9, 13, and 14. So this is 1 Corinthians 9. We read 2 Corinthians 9 today. But in 1 Corinthians 9, 13, and 14, where he says, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? So what did they do when they brought all of those offerings to the temple? What did they do with them? They had all their, their 10% of their, their whole increase. Well, it went to provide for the priests. It went into his storehouses for the priests and the Levites and for the poor. Even so, the Lord has commanded then, he says, that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So he says that same principle in the Old Testament where the priests and the Levites were provided for now is for the ministers of the gospel. Now, of course, God himself does not need food, so why does he want there to be um, food in his house? He tells us this when he rebukes the people for their failure to tithe in Malachi 3, 8 through 10. He refers to them as robbing him when they withhold the tithes. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? That's what the people that Malachi speaks to do all the time. He, he rebukes them about something. They say, how do we do that? What did we do? And he says, how did they say, how have you, how have we robbed you, Lord? He says, in tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, of course, God does not need food, does he? So why does he want there to be food in his house? The food in his house is for the priests and the Levites. God provided for them with the tithes of his people so that he could be worshipped. Nehemiah had to rebuke the people when he saw that the portions for the Levites had not been given to them, forcing them to go to work in the fields. Remember that? Nehemiah 13, verse 10. The same problem is with us today. Now think about this. If you're not tithing, it means that because of you, There are missionaries and others like you. There are missionaries that have not been able to go forth. There are churches that have not been planted that might have been planted and churches that have been closed down 
because of you and others like you. I remember talking to Lester Settle, who was instrumental in us getting this building here, and he had spoken earnestly to some of the people in the United Church. One of the reasons we got this building is because the United Churches are closing down all over the place. And one of the things that he had spoken to them about years ago when he was a minister among them was that the people were not tithing and that uh, the thing wouldn't continue. God commands you to give 10% of all your increase. If you keep it, then he says you're actually robbing God. That's what Malachi says. You're spending or storing up for yourself money that God had told you to use for something else. Just like the guys in James that were withholding the wages from people that worked from them, they had money that they were enriching themselves with that wasn't their money. It was stolen. He gave it to you for a purpose that he appointed for it, and you're using it for a selfish purpose instead. And let me add here that you are certainly free to give more than a tithe. That's where the voluntary aspect comes into play. We're told in Luke 8.3 that there were a number of women who supported Jesus out of their own substance. I would venture to say that that was more than a tithe, as they had um, the, uh, all of his disciples and everything, and they traveled around for all the time. Jesus didn't have uh, his own private resources. He didn't have a bank account. He didn't have even property or anything. And Paul thinks the, thanks the Philippians for supporting him voluntarily as he labored among the churches, in other churches, not their churches. They had their own pastors in their churches and stuff, but some of them reached out to help Paul. In Philippians 4.10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you certainly did care, but you lacked opportunity. In verse 14, he adds, You have done well that you shared in my distress. Now, Paul basically says as well, you know, certainly God will take care of me whether you do or not. But there was an opportunity that they had that they seized. A fourth category of persons that God calls us to provide for are governors and rulers in the civil realm. Judges, governors, law enforcement officers, and military personnel are God's ministers, according to Romans 13. They're appointed by him to govern and to punish and restrain wickedness. Therefore, we are to support them. In Romans 13, 6 and 7, Paul says, for because of this, he's just said that they're ministers of, to the Lord. Because of this, he says, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And note well, it does not matter whether the government is godly or not. The Roman government was not godly at all. And yet, Paul still refers to them as God's ministers to whom taxes were to be paid. Jesus also spoke about this when his enemies came and tried to trick him with a question about paying taxes to Caesar. They were hoping that he would say that they didn't have to and then they could turn him into Caesar. Or if he said they... They did have to, then they could say that he didn't care about God's kingdom and was wanting to support pagan people. They they felt that they had him. What did Jesus do? In Luke 20, 24 through 25, he said, show me a denarius, bring me a coin. Whose image, then he said, whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's 
and to God the things that are God's. The inscription on the coin showed who was responsible, who managed the currency that they were all using in their society. It belonged to Caesar. If he taxes you, then he's the one that God has put over you. It doesn't matter that he was pagan, ungodly, that killing Christians, all the rest. You're still responsible. A fifth category of persons that God calls you to support are the poor and needy. Providing for the poor and needy is expected, but it has a greater voluntary aspect to it than, say, tithing or providing for our children, paying our bills, that sort of thing. Those are things that don't have a voluntary, but this has a voluntary, much more of a voluntary aspect to it. Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is specifically about relieving the poor, that it is a voluntary offering. It's funny because some people will read this and they'll say, well, you know, in the New Testament, it says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that it's just volu- our giving is all voluntary. We don't have tithes or, or things like that. But no, 2 Corinthians is talking about what has always been voluntary, uh, helping out the poor and needy as you have opportunity. In verse 7, then he says, so let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart. This is giving above uh, what a tithe would be or something like that. He says, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Understand that your tithe is not a gift. Your taxes are not a gift to the government. Those are things that are required. Wages to a worker. You don't say, oh, I'm going to give you this. No, I'm paying you for the work that you did when you worked for me. I'm paying my taxes. I'm not giving that. So there's, there's those things. But then the offerings, you see, offerings like the one for the poor at the Jerusalem are special offerings to support missionaries are over and above the tithe, and therefore they are voluntary. You can give as much or as little as you want. Remember with Ananias and Sapphira, Paul said, while it was yours, you could do whatever you wanted with it. But when you dedicated it to the Lord and said you were giving all the proceeds to the Lord and then said that you did do that, you lied. And that's the problem with what they did. He said you could have done whatever you wanted. You could have kept part of it. You could have given all of it. You could have done whatever you wanted. But Paul encourages you here, you see, and to the Corinthians, he encourages them to give a lot. Not so that they put themselves in need, but as he says, as an expression of their sincerity. He refers to liberal giving as a proof of sincerity. And he reminds us in verse 6 that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. In other words, you will reap a great reward for great giving to those in need and such. And consider well that there may be times when you're the one who is in need, when you're the one who is impoverished. The idea here is that when you have opportunity, when you're the one that God has enriched, it is then that you are able and expected to relieve others. God has, rel- God has enriched you in order that you might relieve them. Instead of providing for them directly, he has given enough to you and others so that you can provide for them. In other words, he could provide for everyone directly. We could all get the, the same check in the mail, so to speak. But instead, he has it situated so this person gets a whole lot, and then they're able to help these people over here that didn't get what they needed. He also has some guidelines about giving to the poor that we need to heed. We have seen in previous sermons that we're not to give uh, support to someone who refuses to work when they're perfectly able to work. 
We're not doing them or anybody else any favors. That money should be used for someone else. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. So let people actually go hungry if they're refusing to work. Furthermore, we are instructed that we are to give priority to those who are our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So if you have the choice between a brother in need and someone who is not a brother in need, the brother needs to be taken care of first. And remember, as the language of, in Galatians 6.10 of, of doing good reminds us, giving is not only monetary gifts, but also gifts of service. Some of you are very exemplary in that. Ministering to the sick is a huge way to give to the needy. You can shovel snow for the elderly, or you can take care of a person with a disability. You can relieve parents so that they can have a break. Maybe parents that have a child that has special needs or something like that. You can even provide a permanent service, a a voluntary service. Jesus says that even a cup of cold water given in his name will not lose its reward. You can enrich the, um, the, the church by doing some building project or by cleaning the church or, or different things like that, that that are helpful to everyone. Now, the last category I want to mention here is the most voluntary one of all. God is pleased when you give simply as an expression of love and goodwill. This is giving to someone who is not necessarily in need. It's just an act of kindness. A husband can give wife to his flower can give wife, can give his wife flowers. He can do that. She doesn't need the flowers, but he can give them to her as an expression of love and kindness. Or he can give her some jewelry just because he wants to show love to her and make her happy. Or you can surprise a Christian couple by giving them a night out, not because they are in need, but because you want to be kind to them and it's something that you're able to do. Jesus himself commanded the woman, I'm sorry, commended the woman who anointed him with the very expensive oil that was in the alabaster flask that was broken to get that oil. He commended her while Judas and some of Jesus' other disciples as well complained that that was wasteful, that that oil could have been sold and a lot of money given to the poor. But Jesus said, Matthew 26, 10, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. She didn't do a bad thing. She did a good thing in doing this. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph, is a good example of this as well. When his brothers came to him who had so wronged him and he revealed who he was to them, of course, they were afraid that he was going to lock them all up or something. But instead, Joseph gave them gifts of generosity, not because they needed them, but just as a show of kindness and goodwill to them. Genesis 45:22 says, He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. So he did distinguish between Benjamin, who is his brother that he especially loved, that didn't cast him into the pit and sell him as a slave, but he gave to the others as well, generously, 
to show his goodwill. God is pleased when we do things like that for each other. Think about God. He does things like that all the time. How different would your life be if he only gave you what was necessity and nothing more than that? So he is pleased with this kind of thing. He has given you enough so that you're able to give to others in all of these ways that we have seen. At least you often are. As I said, there are times when you're the one who is in need, but even then you often receive enough that you're able to give something as well, like the widow that gave her two mites that she had. So how glad you ought to be that God operates this way in the world. What a, what a selfish, closed up, unconnected place it would be if God made us all completely independently wealthy. No one needs anyone else in any way whatsoever. Not children, no one whatsoever. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, 12 through 15, where Paul writes and tells us what a good thing it is that the world is structured this way. First, you should be glad for the simple fact that you're able to supply the needs of the saints. In verse 12, he says, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, of course, he's getting ready to say something else, but hey, let's stop there. It supplies the needs of the saints. Not only does that, but it does that. He is getting ready to tell us, you know, what else generous giving does. But he begins by reminding us of this simple fact that you actually give somebody else what they need. You provide for them. Just think of it. God actually empowers you. This is a lot of power to provide other people with what they need in order to survive. That's remarkable. He has empowered you as his agent to keep those dear little children that are born into your home alive. If you don't provide for them, they would die. You feed them and you relieve them of their dirty diapers. The same is true of elderly parents that can't provide for themselves. And just think of it, when you send relief to those in famine, you are actually helping to keep people alive. God has empowered you to give life to those that would have perished otherwise. You have the power to put a smile on the face of others by giving them things, as I said, in a kind way, flowers or whatever. How blessed it is to have power to send missionaries to people that have never heard the gospel. I have heard of people that were wealthy that would even provide maybe for two missionary families entirely to be able to go and minister to others. Those missionaries are out laboring because someone has provided for them. I know a missionary that um, I'm pretty sure has a, a patroness that provides for him that he doesn't have to he doesn't have to go around and raise funds. He doesn't even have to think about that. He's just able to focus on his ministry and carry on with it. It's a very wonderful empowerment that God has given us. God governs the world in such a way that you're empowered to have a part in blessing others. And by sacrificial and liberal sharing, you have a greater part. Like Jesus, you can make yourself poor in order to make others rich. Now, as you grow in love as a Christian, this becomes something that's more and more important to you. The more you love other people, the more joy you have in giving to them. 
in doing things that truly help them. In Charles Dickens' classic A Christmas Carol, Scrooge's old partner Jacob Marley shows that his great misery, his punishment, is that he has been doomed to roam the earth as a spirit who sees people in need but has absolutely no way to help them, no ability to help them. When he was on earth, he had all kinds of ability with the riches that he hoarded up, but now that ability has gone. And that illustrates a purpose. Of course, that's not really the way that judgment works in, the, in, in God's uh, economy, but it, is, it, it illustrates the point that it is a tremendous thing to be able to relieve other people from poverty that would even cause them to perish. Uh, How glad we should be that God has given us such an ability. But in verse 12, Paul goes on to tell us of another great blessing that uh, comes from giving. We ought to be glad about this one as well. He says that by giving, you stir up many thanksgivings to God. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, 12. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints. Okay, that was the part we read before, that it does supply the needs of the saints. What else does it do? But also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. So you stir up people to thank their Lord and God, their creator, to give thanks to him, even for the gospel. Consider first, there's a number of ways that this occurs, that we give thanks to God when people are generously giving. It causes other people to thank God. Let's think of some of these ways. Consider first how your giving makes believers full of thanksgiving for you, the giver. When you give to other believers, it makes them thankful to see that that God's salvation has really come to you. You know, I mean, it's not an absolute proof, but it's a pretty good evidence of some fruitfulness. As Christians, we take great delight when we see the marks of true conversion in other people. Sometimes a person can make a profession of faith, but you're not sure of them. There's not much fruit in their lives, and you wonder, have they really come to know the Lord? And you're concerned, and you pray for them. There's so many false professions, and you know, and you long to see some fruit, some fruit and evidence, because if you're a believer, you know how important it is to know Christ or, or not, and you know how good it is to know him. You want them to know him. The saints at Jerusalem had heard about, this save, about God saving the Gentiles, but you know what most of the Jews thought about Gentiles? Can, can gen, Gentiles, can they, can they really come to God? Can they really be reconciled to God through the cross? They, they haven't really changed, have they? I mean, they worship idols and they, they do all kinds of pagan things. Can, can they really walk with God? You know, but, but then when they received generous gifts from their brothers and sisters and they saw these ones, these Greeks that were giving sacrificially out of their substance to relieve them and others, it made them confident that God had truly saved them. This is what Paul is talking about in verse 13. He says, through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. This is an evidence that they have indeed received the grace of God. 
So you did not only relieve others when you you don't only relieve others when you give, you also enable them to see that God really does change people. And that's a good thing for them to see. It gives them hope and encouragement that they can change too. Okay? It can even help unbelievers to see that faith is a real thing. That this person who used to be all, all selfish and caught up with their own things is now giving to other people. What happened to him? Well, they say, well, the grace of God has come to me and changed me. In fact, our lack of love as Christians is a great stumbling block to the world around us. It causes unbelievers to mock at our professed faith, and it causes other believers to be discouraged and say, I don't know if God's really at work among us. It's very sad, like when Christians are not even tithing, and, and they're not giving. They're not, they're not liberal with their... It, it, you, you can put on a false show of piety, but when you start giving sacrificially, people take you seriously. This person's real. They really mean business. Paul was always giving thanks for those that God had saved. He could never get over it that the Lord would save people in such a gracious way. He knew how little we deserve it. In almost all his letters, he th- says things like he did to the Ephesians in chapter 1, 15 and 16. We read this in Colossians earlier today too. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. The love for the saints. He saw that love for the saints that they had. And, that's, and, and what he says here speaks of another benefit. Along with thanking God for you, when you are someone that gives, okay, it makes people thank God and say, wow, that person's really been changed. I'm so thankful for seeing God's work. What else does it do? Along with thanking God for you, it stirs up their prayers for you. So when you're giving, it has the benefit of causing people to pray for you. When the saints at Jerusalem received generous gifts from the saints at Corinth, I bet they prayed for the Corinthians. <laughs> they, they thought of the Corinthians. They thanked God for them and they prayed for them. When you see God at work, you pray for those that you see him working in. Say, wow, look at what they're doing. God bless that church. Is really like I know I pray a lot for the, um, for the uh, Grace Presbyterian Church in Woodstock, probably more than some of the other churches because they're so generous in their giving and stuff. Like they, they hired Brian Murray just to have... Um, Gillespie Academy there to provide for all the churches that people could have education. It wasn't directly benefiting their church, but they did this. It was, it was sacrificial, calling a whole man and providing for him. And that's been such a blessing to people. And now they've developed into Gillespie, uh, I mean, Gillespie uh, Divinity College. And you know, there's all, the, all this work that they're, they're involved in sending out missionaries, planting churches. You say, wow, God is working there. Pray for these people. And uh, he's obviously causing them to grow in, in, in grace and number. And it makes them also yearn for you. Not only to pray for you, but verse 14 says, to long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. You, you want to have fellowship with them because, wow, this person is so kind and, and look how God has worked in them. You you. You know, you've done something for them, and now they want to do something for you. They want to see you. They want to have fellowship with you. It's hard to be divisive toward those who have given sacrificially to relieve your poverty. You, 
you, you want to be kind back to them. And see, that, that brings out a mutual giving back and forth to each other. What would happen if the Corinthians were in need and the, the saints at Jerusalem were prospering? What do you think would happen? Of course, they helped us. We're going to help. So, so it fosters that whole atmosphere in the church. All of this stirs up thanksgiving to God, though, for the most important thing of all. It stirs up thanksgiving for the gospel itself. When you give generously and sacrificially in the name of Jesus, it ultimately draws attention back to him. No Christian can see sacrificial giving in brothers and sisters without thinking of our dear Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Here is the Savior who started it all. Here is the one who suffered on the cross, who left the glory and the riches of heaven to come into this fallen world in order that he might pay for our sins. He had to give all that he had for us. So 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Even in writing to the Corinthians about their giving, Paul is led to think of Christ and his gift of salvation so that he concludes with these words. 2 Corinthians 9, 15, Thanks be to God, for his indescribable gift. What is the indescribable gift? It's the one we just spoke of. Christ giving himself for our sins. Jesus descended into the bottomless pit of God's wrath and God's curse, all that we might have everlasting life. Here is a gift that we'll continue to give for all eternity. As we shall dwell in the endless bliss of glory, the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit beholding the glory that Jesus had with the Father from before the foundation of the world. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. By providing for others, then, you imitate your Lord's giving to you. You honor him and you draw attention to him and you stir up thanksgiving to him for his wonderful grace. How thankful we should be that God gives us the ability to bless others with our substance and all the more that he has blessed us with the giving of his son. Please stand and let's indeed give thanks to him. Oh, Lord God, we we do want to give thanks to you, Lord, for, for your indescribable gift, for sending your only son to come and to redeem us from our sins. Why would he even do it when we were such wretches that There was such a sacrifice required if we were to be saved. We thank you, O Lord, that you have gone so far out of your way to be a blessing to us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to rejoice and to be glad for what you have done. Lord, that this would truly move us, that we would see the beauty of our Lord Jesus, and that we would want to be those who generously give to others who are in need. We also pray, Lord, that you would help us to do what is right that you have commanded us to give certain things, to pay our taxes, to pay our bills, to pay those who work for us, to uh, give of our tithes and, our, and things. And we pray, Lord, that, that we would do all of these things that are required. And then beyond that, that we would be a generous people, Lord, as we have opportunity. Help us to seek out opportunities. And we want to thank you, Lord, for all of the bountiful provision that 
that we have received. We think about even as our congregation received even this building and we received, many people gave gifts in order that we were able to take care of the cost for acquiring this building. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done. We thank you, Lord, for many of the saints in this congregation that, that give so much, that some that give way beyond their, their tithe in order to, to help out with the, the work of the church and with the service. We thank you, Lord, for those also that, that reach into their pockets when there are particular needs among the people and give generously to provide. Many that do such things that many of us never even know about. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful. We thank you for those that go out and serve and that help others in ways that, of providing service for them. We thank you, Lord, for so many things that are done that are not even recognized by anyone. We thank you, Lord, because these are things that bring glory to your name. And it shows that your people have been affected by the gospel, that they love you and that they're doing these things for you. Yes, Lord, we know that people can give in a hypocritical way. They can do it to make a show and that they do not receive any reward in that case. But we thank you, Lord, that so often that there is a generosity that is born of a true love for Jesus Christ and of his generosity to us. Father, we thank you for the, the way that you do change lives so that people who are once greedy and selfish and who tried to always grasp and take away are now trying to give and to be a blessing in the world. Father, please, 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 please help us, Lord, because we really need, we really need your help. There's, there's some among us that are not even uh, providing, uh, not even giving tithes, not even paying people what they should. And Father, we pray that you would bring repentance, Lord, and that you would cause there to be a turning to you and a, and a obedience, a, a cheerful obedience to you, and then a cheerful generosity that goes beyond that, a giving that goes beyond that. Oh, Father, change us. Change us from our grasping ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessing of the Lord our God. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you're enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Amen.